today very shortly, you'll have the opportunity to have dirt put on your head. Well, all right, it's ashes. Ashes from Palm Sunday's palms, no less. But still, basically, dirt. And we do it in a fairly sanitized way, a smudge on the forehead rather than a handful rubbed into your hair, if you have hair. But even so, it's not a normal thing for most of us, is it? If I had showed up to lead this service covered in dirt, what would you think? Perhaps that something is wrong. Putting dirt or ashes on the head, perhaps sitting in a pile of dirt or ashes, is across many traditional cultures a way to express grieving and a particular aspect of grief, I think. A sense of protests, of outrage, a sense of personal disintegration, as if to say something is wrong, death is wrong, I have been ripped apart, I feel that I'm no longer a human being, I am so distressed and bereft I cannot bear to be alive. I cannot bear to be human, to stand out as a person. I just want to merge again with the earth. Something is wrong. As Joel says today, sound the alarm. We also hear in Joel today a reference to tearing one's clothing. Rend your hearts and not your clothing he says. Again, in many cultures, to rip your clothing and to go around wearing torn clothing is an expression of grief, of shock, of outrage, of something being wrong, amiss. To deliberately tear one's clothing and to go around that way is to display oneself as less than normally human, as an outsider. It's to say that one's humanity has been diminished or undermined, damaged, outraged by whatever has happened, be it the loss of a loved one or a shocking act of injustice or blasphemy. Or it could be the recognition that you have done a terrible thing yourself, ashes, sackcloth, tearing the clothing, refusing to eat or drink. All ways, all of these are ways that humans have said something is wrong. So today, what can we say is wrong in our world? What is wrong today that is worthy of our grief, our sorrow, our outrage? Today we are tapping into those primal human experiences and those primal human gestures. And if we are willing, we can continue to do so in the season ahead. And so even though we do it in a token, sanitized way today, smearing some ash on the forehead, 
and doing it in delicious irony uh, just after hearing Jesus tell us not to disfigure our faces when we fast. What we are doing here today with ashes is saying something is wrong. Now it seems to me that Lent has been rendered somewhat toxic for many people because the message you can get is that this is a time when you are especially supposed to feel bad about yourself, to tear yourself down, to perhaps cultivate a sense of self-loathing. And many of us perhaps have already had too much of that instilled in us in our early lives. But I'd suggest perhaps there could be something a bit liberating in making this not so much about me, but about us, about all of us. Something is wrong with us. Not necessarily that there is nothing wrong with me or you, not necessarily that you and I are not in need personally of repentance. But as we have just heard in the gospel, when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to do it in the first person plural. Our Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive. Rescue us from the evil one. First person plural, us. Well, who is the us, the we? Those of us here today, the whole church, all of humanity, yes, yes, yes. A few weeks ago in an article in News and Notes about the prayers of the people, Pastor Stevens said, the prayers of the people are a communal act, something we all do together on behalf of the entire world. And I would say that the same goes really for all our liturgical prayer. And beyond that, even all our spiritual practice, it's not for me, it's for us, all of us. When we confess our sins, especially when we do so together in the liturgy, as we will today, I'd suggest that we are not just cleaning up our own individual conscience. We are confessing on behalf of the whole church and on behalf of all humanity. And when we give thanks, we give thanks on behalf of all. And I believe this is not just because it is virtuous or caring or high-minded, but because it's the truth. They are us. We are them. Amma Pat spoke about this in her beautiful sermon, Sunday Before Last. She spoke of the myth, myth as in false narrative, the myth of separation, the delusion of separateness that pervades our culture. And Pat mentioned the word interbeing, interbeing, 
a word coined by the Buddhist monk and teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. But this word, this concept of interbeing is profoundly consonant and resonant with a truly Christian view of the world, of reality, with the reality of our God, the interbeing Holy Trinity. We are not separate. Separateness is denial, illusion. We belong to each other. We exist with one another and in one another, right down to the roots. And we humans exist only within the fabric of the universe. We are interbeing creatures in an interbeing universe. When we refuse and deny interbeing, what is the cost? I think of Jesus at his first public appearance, going to the Jordan to seek John's baptism. A baptism, as Mark's gospel tells us, that was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus goes to a baptism of repentance. It's as if he doesn't see his own innocence, his own sinlessness, as if it's irrelevant to his awareness, irrelevant to his action. There is no separation. Already he is in us and we are in him. And he is baptized for repentance because something is wrong with us, among us, between us. Today's gospel is from the Sermon on the Mount. And as I mentioned, I already lengthened the reading a bit beyond what's usually read on Ash Wednesday to include a bit more of Jesus' teaching on prayer. Later, I realized I might have lengthened it even more. Our gospel reading is from the beginning of chapter 6 of Matthew, but the last part of chapter 5, also in the Sermon on the Mount, that's actually where Jesus begins to talk about prayer. And I think it has something to say about this first-person plural business, the we, the us. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Love your enemies. Pray for them. So when Jesus teaches us to say us and we, when we pray, what if, what if as much as anything else, he means pray, that I should pray for me and my enemy? What if that's the us? When I say our father and not my father, that's me and my enemy's father. Everyone else too, but especially my enemy and me. Give us my enemy and me our daily bread, and forgive us, my enemy and me. Deliver us, my enemy and me, and everyone. But perhaps especially, my enemy and me. 
So what if Jesus meant not every once in a while say a prayer for your enemy? What if he meant in every prayer you pray, bind yourself together with your enemy? Every good you ask for yourself or anyone, ask it for your enemy as well, inseparably. What do you think? Which sounds more like Jesus? Let your prayer be like the blazing sun or the pouring rain, says Jesus, like the love of God falling on all alike. Become perfect, complete, indiscriminate, like God. Go into your room, he says, shut the door and pray. When we hear that, we easily think of our own bedroom or something. But of course, peasants in first century Galilee didn't have private bedrooms in their homes. That word for room, or it's sometimes translated inner room, it's in the Greek, it's the word tameon. And in those peasant homes, the tameon would have been the pantry, the larder. This was the thick-walled, windowless storage room in the center of the house, where it was maximally insulated from extremes of heat and cold. When you went in there and shut the door, it was dark. No one could see you. Not your friends, not your enemies, not your neighbors, not your family. And you couldn't see them. You couldn't see yourself. Now, ancient people, and maybe especially ancient peasants, weren't as literally minded as we tend to be. I think many of them would have understood quite readily that Jesus was not really telling them that if they wanted to pray, they absolutely and always had to go into the pantry. Rather, I think Jesus is talking about a room, a space, a deep, dark place within us where no one can see except God a place where there is no other, no visibility, no comparison, no judgment, a place where we can become free of comparing ourselves with others, free of concern about how we appear to others or to ourselves, because there is no other. They are me and I am them in the dark space within where God sees in secret and where the love of God shines like the sun and pours like the rain. Stand in that sunshine, says Jesus. Stand in that rain. Stand there drenched in the realization that there is nothing you can ever do that will make God love you more. And there is nothing you can ever do that can make God love you less. Nothing. Stand there in your powerlessness in that place where you know that you are powerless to change God because already God loves you and your enemy infinitely. God's love for you and your enemy is indistinguishable and inseparable, no different from God's love for Jesus himself. Infinite, unstoppable, unbreakable, indiscriminate. And you are your neighbor. You are your enemy. 
There is no comparison because there is no separation and there is nothing you can do to change God. However, in that place within, you and I just might be changed because love changes us. I think you and I know that at our core. Love changes us. And so exposing ourselves to the love of God can change us, can free us to become more and more like God, our love more and more like the sunshine and the rain. And when that happens, when that change happens in us, that is a change a transformation in the world that we are praying for. That is the hallowing of God's name, the coming of God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. You and I can become the sunshine and the rain that falls on all, shines on all, drenches all indiscriminately on earth as in heaven. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. It sounds easy, it sounds quick, but really, I think for most of us it takes years, decades, a lifetime. It's the whole spiritual journey to go to that place where we become the sunshine and the rain of God's love, blazing and drenching all indiscriminately. And that is what we are for, we humans. That is our role. That is our nature. That is who we are. And the fact that that seems such a crazy thing to say, that indiscriminate, infinite love is our nature, that it's who we are. Well, to come back to dirt on the head and torn clothes and fasting, something is wrong. So much is wrong, so much to be distressed about, so much to hold in our hearts as ashes are smeared on our faces, so much to grieve. Above all, you and I, infinitely loved as we are, we bear the burden of awareness that the industrialized, commercialized way of life that we have developed in the modern West and that is now spread around the earth that this way of life has damaged, perhaps irreparably, the fabric of life and air and earth and water that has made this earth a sustaining home for humans and for creatures of millions of species, billions of creatures for millennia and millennia and millennia. That fabric now unraveling under the strain of just a few centuries of industrial and commercial enterprise under the cover of the myth of separation. The industrialization and commercialization of everything, the myth of separation, the denial of interbeing, the cultivation of blindness to our connectedness with one another and with all living creatures and with the winds and water and soil and stars. Throwing off kilter the balanced climate that has made human civilization possible for this most recent 10,000 years. 
Today, if we are not, today, if we are paying attention and not burying our heads in denial, if we are, we are seeing this fabric fray, seeing the balance slip away, and we know that we human beings have done it, and that we human beings are so far failing to come together to stop it. We, us, forgive us. Something is wrong. So today, instead of burying our heads in the sand, we can smear our faces with ashes as a token of sorrow. Because action is needed on climate and action is needed for us to steward the earth as God has called us to do from the beginning. But I wonder sometimes if the calls to action fail to mobilize us, in part at least, because in jumping to solution and jumping to calls to actions, perhaps we are skipping over our emotional need to register and acknowledge and experience and integrate the profound sorrow of our situation. One of the things that feeds climate denial, I think, is that our culture is allergic to grief. Sorrow doesn't sell. And we Episcopalians aren't necessarily very good at grieving either. But Jesus wept. The prophets lamented. In the light of the love of Jesus, we may well reject the punishing God aspect of today's reading from Joel. But we might do well to listen deeply to his sounding the alarm, his call to weep, to lament, to let our hearts be torn in pain, to feel the reality of how far we human beings have strayed from the path of love, the path of interbeing for which we have been created by an interbeing God, the Holy Trinity. What does repentance mean today? Can we allow ourselves to face the emotional truth of where we are as human beings on this precious earth at this time? What does Easter mean today? Can we trust enough in the love of God and in the light of resurrection to truly face into our darkness? Can we, will we, Will we go to the place of grief and sorrow where God's infinite love can transform us and make us new, make us the bold lovers and passionate stewards of life that God calls us to be?